That's Matthew 21, and I'll start at verse 1. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, tell him that the Lord needs them, and he'll send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to the daughter of Zion, See, your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, on on, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt, placed their cloaks on them, and Jesus sat on them. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest! When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? The crowds answered, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. Jesus entered the temple area and drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It is written, he said to them, My house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. The blind and the lame came to him at the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things he did and the children shouting in the temple area, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. Do you hear what these children are saying? They asked him. Yes, replied Jesus. Have you never read? From the lips of children and infants, you have ordained praise. And he left them and went out of the city to Bethany, where he spent the night. Early in the morning, as he was on his way back to the city, he was hungry. Seeing a fig tree by the road, he went up to it, but found nothing on it except leaves. Then he said to it, May you never bear fruit again. Immediately the tree withered. When the disciples saw this, they were amazed. How did the fig tree wither so quickly, they asked. Jesus replied, I tell you the truth, if you have faith and do not doubt, not only can you do what was done to the fig tree, but also you can say to this mountain, go, throw yourself into the sea, and it will be done. If you believe, you will receive whatever you ask for in prayer. This is God's word. Good evening. Uh, Let me add my welcome if we've not met. My name's uh, Matt Fuller. Lovely to have you with us. If you're just joining us tonight, we're working our way through uh, Matthew's Gospel, this section. It's been electric, hasn't it, really? Uh, Really pretty challenging stuff. Let's pray together as we look at this section. Our great God and Father, open our eyes, we pray, to see Jesus clearly as the wonderful king, offering us peace, coming humbly, and yet one who it is fearful to cross. Help us to hold these two things together, him as wonderful, gentle saviour, a strong judge, so that we see him rightly and respond rightly with our lives. We pray it in his great name. Amen. Now, what a lovely day uh, of uh, weather it's been. What a great weekend. Uh, Have you had a fruitful weekend? That's about as interactive as we get. So, you you know, (laughs) you're best to take the chance while it comes. Fruitful weekend? 
Okay. Uh, it's good. I mean, it's great. Sometimes you, uh, you get to the end of the day and um, you go home and think, was today a fruitful day? Uh, yeah, actually, it was all right. Or uh, no, it was a waste of time. You know, you have that, use that term all the time. Fruitful time? Useful? Now, what will be a tragedy will, we get to, will be to get to the end of your life and the Lord say, well, you didn't have a very fruitful life, did you? What a waste. What a waste. Or, by contrast, well, you made the best use. What a fruitful time you had. That would be much more appealing, I'd have thought. Are we bearing fruit? I guess, in one sense, is the, is the issue of this text when the king comes. We, uh, as I said, we've, um, we've been in this section since, uh, well, oh, I can't remember. Um, sometime this term, like six weeks or something, is it five weeks? Who can tell? But uh, this section, um, chapter 19 to chapter 25, it's all one section in Matthew's Gospel, one of his five main teaching sections. And uh, really, it's so far been very much concerned with uh, the king gathering his disciples. Um, so from chapters 19 and 20, uh, he, Jesus has assembled his true disciples, those who um, are faithful to him sexually and in marriage, who love him more than money, who are humble before him, uh, who serve him last week rather than seeking greatness for themselves. He's gathering his true disciples. And here in chapter 21, he comes to the capital city. The, the king enters in triumph with those he's gathered around, around him. And we see the response that goes on. Now, Matthew largely is presenting here the section as fulfillment of what's happened in the Old Testament. Did you see? Lots of Old Testament quotes uh, here in chapters 21 and a few more allusions that I'll mention in a moment. But the whole section really is saying, at last, at last. Uh, yesterday, uh, a wedding in church, uh, Andrew and uh, Jess got married, and um, uh, actually they were here at the five o'clock, which I can't think of anything. What would you rather do on your honeymoon than come here? <laughs> Marvellous. What a model to us all. Um, uh, but um, uh, they, uh, the, uh, so they, uh, what am I talking about? Anyway, so yesterday was a wedding here, um, and you know, if it is, you may not have done it yourself, but you're fully aware, a wedding, lots of things planned, and the caterers say, we will deliver a cake, and we will deliver flowers, and People write in and say, we will come. And um, the bride and groom say, we will be there. And it works better if they are. Uh, Always a bit awkward if one pulls out. Um, But uh, promises, lots of promises go in. And the wedding day is the day of yes. Yes, the cake comes. Yes, the flower comes. Yes, the guests come. Yes, says the man. And yes, says the woman. I will. Hurrah. Uh, Many blessings upon you, etc. It's a day of fulfillment. And that's what Matthew is emphasising here. Lots of promises have been made in the Old Testament and here they're being fulfilled. Yes. Yes. Now, uh, uh, let's try and break it down this way. Unpack it so we understand it. You can look at it like this. Uh, The king on a donkey, verses 1 to 11, cleanses the fruitless, 12 to 19. So pray for fruit, 20 to 22. Okay. The king on a donkey cleanses the fruitless, so pray for fruit. Those three things. Let's look at them in turn then. First then, verses 1 to 11. He's the king on a donkey. Now we'll see, <clears throat> excuse me, we'll see, actually a couple of times in this passage, Jesus is acting out parables. That is, he's not speaking them. Uh, there once was a man who had two sons. We'll have one of those next week. Um, but here he's acting them out. 
We'll see it with the fig tree. But here, Jesus is in control of this whole incident and he arranges it all, verses uh, 1 to 3. But then he says nothing. And the whole actually triumphal entry, it's just very, he's silent, not a word. And yet his actions speak volumes. So he's acting, uh, not acting out, but fulfilling. He's enacting, perhaps, uh, a parable to make his point. Now, he's in charge of this whole scenario. So chapter 21, verse 1. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples. Now, I meant to bring my uh, holiday snaps with me. If you've ever been to Jerusalem, you know that the Mount of Olives, you get a magnificent view of the old city, which is what was there then. There's a massive new city now as well, of course. But the old walled city of Jerusalem, you stand on the Mount of Olives and you can see it all. Lovely view, and there's a valley that goes down to it, filled with trees, uh, and the cemetery is immediately in front of you, don't worry about that. Um, but uh, uh, the, the main thing you can see is the temple, or what's left of the temple, which is just a big mountain, Temple Mount. When Jesus and his disciples were there, the temple was on it. Now it's the Dome of the Rock, um, if you go out there and uh, visit. So that's where they stood, looking then at the temple. So Jesus says to them, uh, verses 2 and 3, off you go, go and uh, arrange my donkeys. And uh, um, we don't know, did Jesus sort of just prescient know that there'd be a man with a donkey and a colt, or had he bought them the day before? Who cares? We're not told that. The point is, verse 4, that he does it. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Zechariah 9, verse 9, you see the little footnote, the prophet of Zechariah, penultimate book of the Old Testament. Say to the daughter of Zion, see your king comes to you, gentle, and riding on a donkey on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Now, uh, don't think donkey rides. Don't think stick of rock, seaside, pay a quid, ride on a donkey. Don't think that sort of naff picture, because that's not what's going on. It's not, the point here is not that Jesus rode into town on the naffest vehicle he could possibly find. You know, he got into a bashed up old jalopy of a car and uh, rode in, no. In the culture of the time, kings rode on animals, and if you wanted to go to war, you rode on a war horse. But if you were a king and riding around in a time of peace, you rode on a donkey. So, Old Testament. David, the king in a time of peace, rides on a donkey. Solomon, we're told, rides on a donkey. Because that's what you do if you're the king. You only ride on a war horse if you're coming for a scrap. So, uh, 300 years earlier, Alexander the Great had invaded Jerusalem on a big white war horse, you know, sword, uh, that sort of thing. And that's what you do if you're coming for war. But if you're coming for peace, you ride on a donkey. So, the point here is uh, uh, Jesus is riding into Jerusalem, not in a tank wanting a fight, but in a Rolls Royce, peacefully. That's the picture of how he's coming. He doesn't come on a stallion to terrify, but on a donkey. A beast that brings help. Uh, The red carpet is rolled out. That's verse 8. A large crowd spread their cloaks on the road. Others cut branches and spread them on the road. No red carpets in those days. But that's the equivalent. Uh, People get excited. So verse 9, they shout out, Hosanna to the son of David. Essentially, God save the king is what they shout out. And then Psalm 118, more fulfillment. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. 
Then we're told, verse 10, final thing, when Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred. That's a fairly weak translation. Stirred is what you do with a cup of tea or your gin and tonic. You stir it, unless you're James Bond, obviously. Um, but you stir gently. It's not that. It's shook the whole thing. The Greek word is seisto, seismic, from which we get the English word seismic. Yes, that's right. Uh, I love it when it works like that. It makes it very easy. Um, two other times that word comes up in Matthew's Gospel. The first is when Jesus dies on the cross and the ground splits open and the dead rise out. Do you remember that? The second, on Easter Sunday, when the tomb splits open and he's no longer there. So when it was, it's, you know, ding, 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 it's not a little gentle stirring, it's the whole place shook. It was thumping. Because that's what happens when the king is in town. Everything shakes. He is the one who splits the earth. And then he comes gently, the man of peace. But there is a little contrast here that we're meant to pick up. The king comes into town. He has the power to split the earth. He could destroy anyone there. And yet he comes peace. He's not come on a war horse. Oh, he will do that. When the world ends, you read Revelation 19, Jesus is on a war horse for battle against those who have always opposed him. But here he comes for peace. One says, you have that choice. You either greet him as the king on a donkey, offering you peace, or you greet him, Revelation 19, as the king on a war horse, who you've rejected all your life. It's kind of the suggestion that's being made here. Here, though, the one who splits the earth is the humble king. He says, I come bringing peace. Will you have peace with me? He's the king on a donkey. But secondly... He does cleanse the fruitless, verses 12 to 19. So the king on a donkey cleanses the fruitless, excuse me, 12 to 19. This is all about the temple. Even the fig tree is about the temple. Uh, I don't want to explain that to you. So you get the three little, there's a sort of a judgment at the temple when he turns over the tables. There's healing in the temple. And then there's a judgment of the temple again, which is the incident with the fig trees. just so we get, I want to look at the figs first, slightly turn things on their head. So uh, verse uh, 18 and 19, early in the morning he was on his way back into the city, he was hungry, seeing a fig tree by the road, he went up to it, found nothing on it except leaves, then said to it, may you never bear fruit again, and immediately the tree withered. Now, can I just put your mind at ease? If you're a fig lover, so is Jesus. He hasn't got anything particularly against fig trees. When I was growing up, my grandmother in particular loved fig rolls. And for me, going to my grands, we got fig rolls. And those in those days, to my mind, it was the, the Rolls Royce of biscuits. And uh, I've been working on this uh, this week, and I thought, I haven't had a fig roll for a while. I bought myself some fig rolls. They are very good. And even... look. I don't want to distract you now, but just so you can celebrate with me, they'll be available afterwards. Cheaper than the pizza, for free, you can have. And if you've never had a fig roll, they're a good biscuit. Okay? But it's not that Jesus has got anything against fig rolls. I don't suppose fig rolls existed. They're a Turkish, <laughs> Turkish design. I'm often, come back, come up, come back. 
There's nothing against fig trees per se. What we need to understand here, it's a picture of a fruitless religion. We're told here, Jesus went and the fig tree had leaves, but no fruit. That is odd. Because if you go out to that part of the world, one, you wouldn't expect a fig tree to be in leaf in uh, April time, something like that, whatever it would be, um, that year. Um, uh, The um, Passover festival. But if you get leaves, you get figs. The two go hand in hand. They go together. It's not that the leaves come out a long way before the figs. They come out together by the nature of the fig trees of the region. So to have a tree which has leaves but no fruit is false advertising. What? If you've got one, you're expecting the other. Jesus goes up to this fig tree, it's all leaves but no fruit, and says, I curse you. It's not that he's having a bad day and he's hungry. It is in context he's pointing out, and this is precisely the problem that I've just encountered at the temple. There is the appearance of genuine religion. There are leaves, but there is no substance, no fruit. Looks good, nothing there. Veneer of spiritual truth, veneer of religious activity, no content. That's his issue here. Now with that in place, let's go go back then to um, see him work that out uh, from verse 12 onwards. Verse 12, Jesus entered the temple area and drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It is written, he said to them, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. Now you've got to say Jesus is rough here. I mean, you know, throwing over a table. He doesn't hurt anyone. He's not attacking people. There is no divine precedent here for throwing a punch at someone who is annoying you, clearly, just in case of doubt. But nor is he, um, uh, nor is that he just, he's having a bit of a feng shui moment and fancies rearranging the furniture. We're told precisely what's going on in verse 13. It's written in Isaiah, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it, as Jeremiah put it, a den of robbers. Now there's a financial sense in which that's true, that this is a den of robbers. You'd go in with your Roman currency, your uh, denarii, and you'd have to exchange it for the temple shekel in order to pay your temple tax. And the rate of exchange was absurd. Makes travel X look really good value for money. Um, so they were diddling you people in order to, uh, you know, there's a financial sense in which they were robbing people. That's not really the point, though. There's a deeper sense. This little quote, a den of thieves, a den of robbers. You can see down at the uh, footnote, it's quoting from Jeremiah 7. It's worth seeing that in context to see what precisely Jesus was saying. So Jeremiah 7. The Lord says to the people of Jerusalem there at that time, do not trust in deceptive words and say, this is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. Will you steal and murder, commit adultery and perjury, Burn incense to Baal and follow other gods you've not known and then come and stand before me in this house which bears my name and say, oh, we're safe. Safe to do all these detestable things? Has this house which bears my name 
become a den of robbers to you? But I've been watching, declares the Lord. Let's just leave that for a bit. So the, the robbery that Jeremiah and the Lord was condemning is those who have robbed God of faith. Do you see what they were doing? Monday, or in those days, Sunday through to Friday, um, just living as they desired, doing what they wanting, murdering, stealing, committing adultery, perjury, following other gods. But then on, on the Sabbath or Saturday, going along and saying, oh, the temple, all is well. All is forgiven. We've got no problem now. You know, it's the sort of culinary equivalent or, you know, to someone who downs, uh, I don't know, three bottles of vodka a day, and then says, oh, my liver will be shot. But I eat an apple a day. One apple a day, and so my liver is fine. The apple of the Lord, the apple of the Lord, the apple of the Lord, and that'll make my liver well. It doesn't work like that. To live with no genuine faith in God, but just a little religious veneer to your life is useless, said Jeremiah, says Jesus. This is, he goes into the temple, throws over the tables and says, this is absolutely superficial. There is no faith here. And you see that sort of, what do you call it, rabbit foot religion? I've got my little lucky rabbit foot, I'll be fine. You see that all over the place. You see it around the world. I remember going to Indonesia. And um, most little houses seem to have outside of them a, a, a leaf with these tiny little blobs of food and lots of joysticks coming out. And everyone was saying, look, I know I've lived a terrible life, but as long as I offer this, make this offering to the gods, all will be well. Harvests will be fine. Uh, um, animals will be healthy. All will be well. The temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. We're fine. We can do what we want. No, you can't. Or um, years ago, before I was married, I uh, lived with a bunch of um, other blokes in a house in Birmingham. And uh, we had a terrible landlord. I mean, he was, I mean, he was unscrupulous, really. Um, but the rent was cheap, so, you know, you take your money, you pay your choice, kind of, that sort of thing. But uh, he used to come round, and for some reason, even though he owned about 12 houses in the street, he loved our house, um, mocking us for the fact that we paid rent on a decrepit nonsense of a building. Uh, so he'd come round, Mr. Razak, uh, once a month to collect his rent, which we paid by cheque. This is a slightly different age, isn't it? But anyway, um, we paid him once a month, and he'd always come in, and even though none of us from Birmingham would always burn and say, hello, Brummies, how is, the, how is your house? Terrible. I know. <laughs> um, and it went a bit like that. I remember one occasion he came in and said, oh, Brummies. We're not Brummies. Anyway, Brummies, uh, we, I, I not see you next month. You need to pay me double because uh, I'm, going to, um, I'm going on a pilgrimage to Mecca. Oh, are you? Why are you doing that? Well, I cheat the tax man. I cheat on my wife. And I do you over, I diddle you with this dodgy house and other tenants like you. So I need to go on a pilgrimage so I'm forgiven. So, you could just sort our house out, that'd be fine. Then you don't need to go all the way to Mecca, that would be fine, you know. No, 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 you don't understand, I can do what I want here as long as I go on pilgrimage, he said. You see that sort of attitude, I guess. Or perhaps closer to home. To think that the occasional visit to church makes you okay with God, 
Oh, you know, whatever it is, uh, Monday to Saturday, I do whatever I want with my life. As long as I go to church on Sunday, sing a song or two, oh, men, I'm all fine, aren't I? I go and say, the mountain of the Lord, and praise the Lord, and all is well, and who cares what I do? Saturday and Monday, the Lord does. She just leaves. There's no substance. There's no fruit there. I mean, you see how Jesus interprets that list up there. If you steal, if you murder, that is angry towards people. If you commit adultery, there's lust after people. Perjury, burn incense, follow other gods you've not known. You're not okay. If your life is characterized by unrepentant sin, and you know you do, there's something you're doing wrong. You can't say, I'm okay with the Lord. You know, you get the sort of pagan version. You do have people who have their lucky rabbit's foot. You know, well, God will forgive me, I got my rabbit's foot. That's, you know, well, nonsense. You get other people who would call themselves Christians. But what does that mean, really? I mean, there's no even, no aspiration to have any fruit in their life, to live differently. Yes, I'm a Christian. Is Jesus your Lord? Well, sorry, what do you mean by that? Would you want to do you live your life for him? Ooh, no. Calm down. I'm a Christian. Sort of Church of England English sort of Christian. That sort of thing, you know. That's all right, isn't it? No, it's just leaves. Just superficial leaves. Or even just you know, a little bit closer to home. It's just a warning, something like this. If you would call yourself a Christian, say, look, I trust in Jesus. But, but you know in your life there is an area which is just wrong and you've not repented of it. Morally, a temperamental thing of anger, ethically, Sexually, you just know there's an area of your life which is completely contrary. How you're living it is contrary to how Jesus expects. And you're not doing anything about it. There's no repentance. It is no good saying, I trust Jesus, I trust Jesus, I trust Jesus, I trust Jesus, if there's no repentance along with your faith. Beginning of Matthew's Gospel, Jesus comes along and says, repent and believe the good news. Repent, change your lifestyle, and have faith in me. Trust in my death for you. Repent and... That's how you live as a Christian. But to say, I believe in Jesus, but your life never changes at all. He's not your Lord. That's presumption. That's just leaves. There's no fruit. And Jesus curses that sort of religion. The king on a donkey cleanses the fruitless. You get these two bits of judgment then. There's um, uh, uh, the, the sort of casting over of the tables. There's the cursing of the fig tree. Same point. 
precisely the same thing. One is just a parable acting it out, what's going on. In between you get this healing. Even that's not all positive. In one sense, it's wonderful, isn't it? So, so verse 14 and 15, the blind and the lame came to him at the temple and he healed them. Jesus casts out the, uh, uh, the money changers and brings in the poor and the, uh, the sick. Wonderful, wonderful. He ca- they came to him and he healed them. Well, of course he did. This is just what Isaiah 35 predicted. It's more fulfillment. When the king comes, he heals. Of course he does. Um, and Matthew has this lovely summary of it, verse 15. Uh, when the chief priests and teachers of the law saw he, the wonderful things he did. Wonderful things. And the children shouting in the temple area, Hosanna to the son of David! God save the king! Um, they're indignant. The chief priests, the teachers of the law, the local vicar and the bishop, they're grumpy. Do you hear what they're saying? They're saying you're the Messiah of the Old Testament. And Jesus says, yeah, they are, aren't they? And um, remember Psalm 8, which says that children and uh, infants will praise the Lord God. Yeah, that's going on as well. Oh, he doesn't back down. They're calling you the Messiah of the Old Testament. Yeah, yeah, they could just call me God as well. You know, <laughs> and he walks, I don't know if he winked. Um, but he left them, verse 17, He's made his point. So even, I mean, (laughs) Jesus condemns their superficial religion. Unsurprisingly, they're rant. They're indignant. They don't like it. The king on the donkey comes offering peace, but he cleanses the fruitless. Verses 12 to 19. So, pray for fruit. 20 to 22. Pray for fruit. Uh, Jesus uh, uses the, uh, the cursing of the fig tree to make a further point here then. Verse 20. When the disciples saw this, they were amazed. Oh, how did the fig tree wither so quickly? Uh, they asked probably nothing like that. Um, but how, did, how did that happen? Uh, uh, Jesus replied, verse 21. I tell you the truth. If you have faith and do not doubt, not only can you do what was done to the fig tree, but also you can say to this mountain, go, throw yourself into the sea, and it will be done. If you believe, you will receive whatever you ask for in prayer. Whoa! Really? Oh, Lord, I don't really fancy a tube journey home. Can I have a Porsche, please, to get me home? I really believe you can do it. I mean, we could, have a, we could all try that uh, and uh, see if the fleet turns up uh, outside next door. Do you expect that? Now, there is a school of thought which runs pretty close to that. Um, You can go to some places, and essentially it is, if you believe, you will receive. Just claim the promises of God, and everything will come to you. Just please, if I can put this bluntly, never say that. In a general sense. Please don't say to the parents with a sick child who dies... Oh, if only you'd believe more, she'd have stayed alive. Don't say that. Ever. I think verse 22 has been used abusively at times by people calling themselves Christians. Don't say to the person diagnosed with cancer, oh, if you believe enough, you'll be healed. Jesus says so. Don't say that. Please don't say that. That would be wicked and cruel. 
So what is Jesus saying? Well, you've got to factor in at least um, the chapter before. He does refuse requests. So uh, in chapter 20, verse 20, uh, James and John come along. Can we sit at your right hand and left hand in the kingdom of God? No. But we believe it would be wonderful. No. So Jesus says no. Sometimes. Or you've got to factor in uh, later on, in a couple of chapters' time, three chapters' time, Jesus is going to be in the Garden of Gethsemane. Father, can you take this cup from me? No. Oh. Or 2 Corinthians 11, Paul says, uh, Lord, can you take this thorn from the flesh, this, this, this thing that's really inhibiting my ministry? I could be so much more useful for you if you remove this thorn from the flesh. No. Oh. God says no. Yes. In the Bible. And what a wonderful thing God does say no to our daft prayers sometimes. That's a great blessing. That he doesn't give us always what we ask for. Because that could be terrible. He sometimes says no. What is he talking about here? Here's what I think he's talking about here. Verse 21. You can say to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea. Which mountain is he talking about? This mountain. Temple Mount is where they've been and they've just walked away from their, um, they've gone back to Bethany, looking back towards the city. Temple Mount is where they've spent all the time. And look how he connects the two. Verse 21. Not only can you do what was done to the fig tree, which was what? Curse, useless religion. But also you can say to this mountain, Temple Mount, you can just go away. See, throughout this section, the fig tree has been a, a metaphor, a picture of the temple. And he joins the two here. Oh, look, cursing the fig tree, just, you, should, you can curse the temple as well. That mountain will be destroyed. And it was. 70 years later, when the Romans invaded. And it was destroyed. Now, just to make it even clearer, the Old Testament backdrop to this, you get, you get plenty of backdrop. Isaiah 40, verse 3. Prepare the ways of the Lord. Make straight in the wilderness a highway for our gods. You know, the Messiah bit, every valley um, shall be exalted and every mountain shall be made low when the Messiah comes. The mountains will be destroyed when he comes. Or Zechariah 4, verse 7. The mountains will be leveled in order for the message of salvation to go out. That's the backdrop, I think, to what's going on here. So what is Jesus saying? I think Jesus is praying here, or saying you can pray where religion is superficial, pray. Pray that my gospel goes out. That's what you need to pray. Pray that obstacles to my gospel are removed. One further thing on this. Some might think, Mm, that's a pretty feeble undermining of the text. Look, that is my best understanding of what's going on here. But otherwise, just <laughs> let me push back on that a little bit. You want to take this more literally, do you? What do you do with verse 21? I tell you the truth, if you have faith and do not doubt. Do you pray anything without doubt? What are the prayers you pray and don't have just a little inkling that this might not happen in your head? Are there any? Let me put it to you, the only, one, the only prayers you can pray with no doubt about are the ones that God promises in Scripture. Lord, I'm a Christian, will you keep me until the day I die? Yes, I will, because I promise to in Scripture. 
Lord, will you expand your kingdom? Will, your, will the gospel go out to the ends of the earth? Yes, it will, because I've promised so in Scripture. Lord, will you give me, I'm a believer, will you give me your spirit to help me grow fruit in my life? Yes, I will, because I've promised to do so in Scripture. Those are the only things you can pray without a shadow of doubt in your head. Anything else? Of course you doubt. Of course you will. Pray. Pray for fruit. And I guess that takes place in at least three ways. And then we're done. The first is this. The first is simply a prayer that you become a Christian, I guess. Lord, are you there? I think you are. And... um, I don't know. The sort of Christianity I've had in my... I I don't really know you. I I thought it was okay just to sort of pop into church ten times a year and do not a lot else. You you, you want to impact every day of my life? Okay, Lord. Can I become a Christian? That's the fundamental prayer for fruit. Or to put it in another sense, uh, this destruction of the temple... Elsewhere, John chapter 2, this is the second time Jesus clears the temple in his ministry. The first time is at the beginning, recorded in John chapter 2. John chapter 2, Jesus says, this temple will be destroyed, but rebuilt in three days. And they go, uh, and he's like, me. I'm the temple. You want to have faith? You come to me, says Jesus. Believe that I would die for your sins. Rise again three days later. That's how you can have genuine faith. Believe in me. And you can never bear fruit of any spiritual worth unless you've trusted in the death and resurrection of the Jesus Christ. That's the first way you pray for fruit. Lord, I want to become a Christian. I want to repent and have faith in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Second way, I guess, is ongoing. Lord, I'm a Christian. Uh, I know there's... Look, I, I, I want to confess. I want to confess this evening to you and to a friend, to someone else, to a minister, wherever it may be, I want to confess there is an area of my life which has been completely out of kilter with how Jesus teaches. And I want to stop being a hypocrite. I want to stop saying, I trust in Jesus, I trust in Jesus, but go and sleep around over here. I trust in Jesus, I trust in Jesus, but embezzle money over here. I want to stop that hypocrisy. That's a prayer for fruit. Lord, I want to stop presumption But I'm coming to you and saying, I genuinely repent and have faith in you. And then I can know forgiveness. You become a Christian, keep going as a Christian, the repentance and faith. I guess the other way you pray for fruit is to pray in the most general sense that Jesus says here. Remove the obstacles to your gospel and let us see your gospel grow. What's the time scale for that? I don't know. It'll happen. The Lord promises it will happen. When? Don't demand it happens by tomorrow morning. It might, but probably not. Well, if you want to pray and got no doubt in your mind, no, 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 no. But it's a prayer we can pray. Lord, I, I see. You know, there, there are. You know, there are lots of people in established churches that don't know you. Will you remove them so that the gospel can grow? That's a good prayer. Old prayer, isn't it? But pray for fruit. The king on a donkey. That's how he offers himself to us now. He says, one day, Revelation 19, I'll come on a white horse with a sword. But now, I offer you peace. Come to me now, says Jesus. 
don't be opposed to me then, please. He's the king on a donkey, because he'll cleanse the fruitless eventually. So pray for fruit. Become a Christian. Repent. Pray for fruit in the most general sense that the gospel goes out. That is a fruitful life for the king. Let's pray together. Our great God and Father, help us to see Jesus clearly and rightly, we pray, as the delightful, humble king. He can split the earth, yet he comes humbly and offering peace, the one who heals the poor, who delights to hear the praise of his people. Would we hold that together with the fact that he is one who judges false, superficial religion, And therefore, would we cling to him, throw ourselves upon his mercy, call out to him as the children do, Hosanna, praise you, Lord Jesus, who died for me and rose for me. Would we do that and live lives seeking to bear fruit for him? We ask it in his great name. Amen.